0: Helen McDonald, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Vesper Flights is out in paperback, and we are so excited to see you today.
1: It's a real thrill. Thank you for inviting me on.
0: Can we talk about the title, Vesper Flights?
1: Absolutely. It's a curious phrase. There's a bird called a swift. They are very aerial birds. They, they have tiny little mouse-like feet and they, they live in the air basically like herring or fish inhabit the ocean. And every evening as dusk falls, these birds make these astonishing aerial ascents. They climb into the sky. They climb thousands of feet into the dusk sky. And these flights are called Vespa flights after the Latin vesper, meaning evening. And as uh, many of the listeners out there right now will know it's also the name of the last liturgy, the last evening prayers as well in some Christian traditions. So it's got that kind of slightly transcendental kind of religious, spiritual overtones. And I love the word Vespa. It's beautiful. And there's a whole essay in this book about Vespa flights.
0: And it turns out Swifts do them twice a day. They're not limited to the end of the day.
1: No, they, they, for years, people thought they just went up there to sleep. You know, they sleep on the wing. Scientists have discovered that in fact, they go up and they come down again at night, and then they go up again in the, at dawn, and they come down again. And they do it so that they time these Vespa flights so that they reach their apex at exactly nautical twilight. And it's speculated that the reason they're doing this, it's really moving actually, they're doing this because at that height, they can see for you know over 100 miles, so they can see clouds coming on the horizon. They can see the stars, so they can um, orient themselves according to the constellations. They can um, also use polarized light patterns, which are very, very strong and clear at dusk, to, to orient themselves. And they sort of take the temperature as well. Basically, what they're doing is they're orienting themselves to the world to work out what they're going to do next. And they don't do that singly. they do that as flocks. So this whole essay where I talk about this phenomenon becomes for me a meditation really on the importance of community and of listening to each other. And if you've got the time and the ability to look and see what's coming towards us on the horizon. And I wrote this essay way before the pandemic fell on us and reading it now, it's a, it's kind of chilling. You know, it sort of makes me feel it was only a, it must probably written about three months before the first reports came out of China. And now it just, yeah, it's, it's kind of scary.
0: And you wrote a lot of these pieces on deadline, in hotel rooms very late at night. You're writing these luminous essays about nature and your connection to nature and the wild and birds. Birds really do factor in quite a lot in this book. You're writing this in, I'm going to assume, sterile hotel rooms at horrible hours in strange places.
1: There were some great hotel rooms. Yeah. So some of these pieces were written especially for the book. Some were written mm-hmm. for other places. Some were written because I had questions in my mind I wanted answered. And some were written on commission for, for New York Times magazine. And a lot of these were written, as you said, on, when I was on tour and, um, you know, deadlines were pressing. And I, you know, did joke with my publishers about whether a subtitle of the book could be, you know, weeping in hotel rooms at 4 a.m. But uh, yeah, some of those hotel rooms were pretty amazing. You know, um, I remember one lovely hotel, but someone had gone along the corridor and put surgical gloves over every single smoke alarm. So as you walked along the corridor, there was this kind of terrifying hanging, limp, plastic hands <laughs> It reappears in my nightmares, that that image. And, and it was very weird because, of course, you know, I'm writing about air and space and wings in these pieces. And yet a lot of them were written in these, you know, very familiar, enclosed hotel rooms. But I love hotels. And in fact, one of the things that I really miss about the pandemic is I just haven't had a chance to go on tour. It's all been at my kitchen desk and it you know, I miss the hotels. I miss the traveling. And most of all, I miss booksellers and readers. That's, that's a real grief to me, not being able to, to, to make that connection.
0: There's an essay in the book where you talk about birds and nesting and how they build their nests, and also the patterns of when nests are built and how they're built and that they use materials from people. You've also said that birds and their nesting influence the way you think about home. And you spend a lot of time on the road. You always have. What does home mean now? And how did those birds change what you thought of it?
1: Yeah, I really like the way that looking at the natural world can change the stories that we're all handed as kids about the way life should be. You know, I had a a really cool family, you know, but um, I, you know, still used to read my princess books when I was a kid. And I thought, you know, you grow up and get married and have kids and you live in a house, you know, it's the real kind of suburban dream. And, and I think as a child, you know, I was would read these books that said nests were bird homes and i'd be a bit puzzled because to start with they only appear at certain times of the year and then they're abandoned and 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 also nests they're kind of quite various you know some birds literally lay their eggs on bare rock Some birds make floating rafts like grebes, and some birds, you know, steal other birds' nests. And I think, you know, the more I thought about the idea of nests as homes, the more I began to kind of wonder what the meaning of home was and how it can be a place that you can carry within you rather than a a fixed place. I love this way that birds can recruit and steal human materials to make their nests. I have a friend who found a Feruginus's hawk nest made entirely of bits of wire, and Orioles will put cigarette butts in their nests. And I, I just think this is a really moving kind of way of thinking about how We live in a world which, you know, it's so easy to think of ourselves as cut off from the natural world, but it's it's a very partial kind of woven together story. And just like birds make their nests out of our things, we make stories about ourselves out of the natural world. It's a really fascinating, I'm never going to be tired of talking about it.
0: There's so many narratives about the natural world that are sort of, man conquers the natural world. I mean, you've taken a different tack. You are seated firmly in the natural world. You have been, since you were a child, it is a place of comfort and knowledge and connection for you. You have never seen
1: yourself as sort of needing to conquer. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's that whole frontier thing, isn't it? That that Mm -hmm. sense that through hunting or exploring or having contact with wild nature, you can... um, increase your masculine integrity. It's such an old story. And, you know, and so many of the stories we talk about nature, we tell about nature, about testing ourselves against it, or, you know, defining ourselves against it. And that's never really interested me. When I was a kid, one of my favorite books was My Side of the Mountain by Jean Craighead George. And I adored that book, partly because it was about a kid who went off to the Catskills after reading about how to survive in the wild, you know, in the New York Public Library. And he just goes out there and he just basically lives off the world and has a great time. You know, he trains a peregrine falcon and he lives in a hemlock and everything's just great and easy. And I love that, that sense that it it wasn't somewhere that was out there to get you or trap you or something you had to fight against. It could be home. Yeah. When I was a kid, you know, I I used to try and learn all the names of the creatures around my house in a way that was, you know, a bit like learning the names of my friends at school. I just wanted to know what and who they were. And it, it began to feel pretty quickly like family rather than Otherness, which is a that that difference of otherness in family, is also something that's threaded right through this book.
0: Field guides were part of your education, and field guides have all become apps.
1: I know it's true. I love field guides. I'm such a nerd, you know. When I was a kid, I'm you know I used to honestly, I just sit on the toilet and learn my birds as a child you know all the latin names and all the different patterns i was such a geek a lot of them are apps now and i think you know that's interesting they work really well and mm-hmm. um, but you do miss a few things you miss the illustrations in field guides that all often have similar things on the same page and you can kind of look at them all and learn them all together whereas apps it tend to be much more individual pages but you know there is this whole kind of story about how screens are getting in the way of our relationship to nature and I, I get quite kind of cross about that partly because yeah. I'm horribly addicted to my phone but yeah. if you look at something like Twitter there are these beautiful communities that are arising of people who are photographing stuff that they see out there and they're sharing the photographs and then experts are coming in and these conversations happen. I think it's a real democratization of expertise relating to nature and I, I love it. I, I absolutely d- delight in the ways in which phones and screens can help people become experts who otherwise wouldn't have access to that information
0: is there some place you've really wanted to go that you haven't yet oh so many
1: imaginative places one of the places i've always wanted to go and this is like a kind of an odd one because it's not really nature I've always wanted to go up to the far north and visit some of the old abandoned defence early warning stations that the were placed up there during the Cold War to detect Soviet missiles coming over. These remote facilities, you know, um, that are all kind of a lot of them are falling apart now. Obviously, they're not used anymore because they did they sort of develop radar that could look over around the curvature of the globe. But there's something about that coincidence of defence and territory and nationhood and wildness and wilderness and there's also obviously a history of sort of dispossession and colonialism. So there's a, there's a whole kind of, you know, a, a sort of incredibly rich tapestry of things that fascinate me in those places. And I would love to go up there and stomp around and probably complain a lot about being cold, but I can deal with cold better than I can with heat. So I would love to go and visit some of those places. But another place I've always wanted to go that I went to recently, and in fact, my next book is going to be on this place, I managed to go to a place that I first saw in a National Geographic article from 1964. And that's Midway Atoll in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, one of the most remote places on earth. It's an abandoned naval air station. It's very small. It's only a couple of square miles. And it has, you know, millions of birds on it. And I went there out there to count albatrosses for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And it was like visiting the afterlife, in a way. It was the most astonishing place I've ever been. Absolutely dreamlike. Every three foot, there's an incubating albatross looking up at you. And you're surrounded by unimaginable distance. And the clouds above the atoll go green in the sun because the light coming from the water is so turquoise, it turns the clouds green. And at night, the air is completely full of nocturnal seabirds. I Still, dream about that and almost every night. Part of me is dreaming about Midway, so that's that's one of the places I always wanted to go and got to and hope to go back to. And I'm definitely writing about
0: that's amazing. How big is an albatross?
1: Well, they're big, you know. The, yeah. a, um, the ones on Midway are not that big, they're laced mm-hmm. and footed an albatrosses, so they're not the biggest albatrosses. I saw a really my first albatross. It's like a first kiss, isn't it? It's one of those moments you don't forget. Although my first kiss was a bit of a disappointment, but we won't go into that. I was in New Zealand and I was standing on a headland in Dunedin and I was looking out over the ocean thinking, you know, I want to see an albatross because it's a little inland colony now. These birds are royal albatrosses and they are huge. And one came in on the wind and it was so big that it was impossible to understand. It was like a dog hanging there in, in the air, you know, and it it turned this its head towards me with this you know these kind of very dark madonna like eyes and this squid cutting beak and it looked right at me and and you know it was like everything vanished in the newness of that moment we exchanged a, a glance you know its world was all the kind of upswell of the, you know the the oceans and the, the you know the breeze and the spray and I just it was one of the most sublime moments i've ever had and that's what really got me into albatrosses so yeah they're enormous they're like small airplanes in my head
0: you were also in australia But one of the things that hit you really hard and you write about in the essay is homesickness. It didn't smell like anything you'd ever encountered. Yeah, it smelled
1: great out there. I was in the mountains. It smelled like kind of a little bit like old paper and jet fuel,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: aromatic Mm -hmm. proteins from the eucalyptus. And it was wonderful. But I suddenly missed very, very viscerally missed rainy, green English, miserable weather. And the sounds of English birdsong. And I think this connection between nationhood and patriotism, this is a word I'm very dubious about, and a feeling of being at home is such an interesting one. And particularly politically right now, it's it's very important because I think of my friends in Australia, you know, my friends who their ancestors came over on boats from Europe. And the big question there is, you know, how do you feel at home in a place that does not belong to you? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, making connections to wildlife and to the environment is a way, I think, in which one can derive very deep and loving commitments to a place while acknowledging the kinds of histories of dispossession that, that, that have gone on. So I think it's a really important thing to, to learn about the natural world and to, to sort of stake yourself to, to that rather than, in my own opinion, to, to wider political notions of belonging
0: pardon the pun, but it keeps me grounded knowing yeah. where I am and what my environment is. I spend quite a lot of time in California and the weather here is significantly different than it is in New York. I haven't looked at the weather app on my phone the way I usually do because I don't need to. The weather in Los Angeles is really consistent.
1: Yes, weather is really interesting like that. And and there's an essay in the book, which is really, I guess, about the divine. I'm not a, I'm not a religious person, but there are moments in nature that really do feel to me that I'm in contact with something numinous, something really deep um, beneath the sort of surface of things. And quite often they're weather related. They're moments when light breaks through clouds or the pattern of rain on dust. And, you know, those moments can be really transformative and they are so connected to where exactly where you stand on the planet. There's an
0: essay where you are out in the woods in the winter, which is one of your favorite things to do. Every New Year's Day, you make sure you walk in the woods in the snow before the end of the day. And you're talking about how clear history becomes, that you can see 500 years and 500 weeks and five hours. And it's a really beautiful sentiment.
1: It's a kind of mindfulness I really go mm-hmm. for. I, I, you know, I was talking today with a friend of mine about the fact that, you know, I, I worry sometimes because when I'm not talking or writing, there's pretty much nothing in my head. And I always felt this is a, something, you know, the terrible, terrible flaw in my personality. And she laughed her head up and said, that's mindfulness. Everyone's hoping for that all the time and I'm like no no it's just like empty anyway but this notion of living in the moment I think is so it's so much of a draw to us but but I also have this sort of plea for us to think about history as something we should occupy too so if you go into a wood in the summer everything's full of life it's buzzing it's kind of like green you can't see anything there's so much foliage and everything's moving it's glittering there's so much profusion and you sort of live in the moment but in the winter something else happens and I, I love woods and forests in this way, that if you walk around in winter, the bones of the landscape are exposed to you, you can see, you know, tree roots, you can see tracks of animals in the snow, you can sort of trace back days, or you can see in in Britain, you know, around here, you can see kind of medieval stock ponds, and you can see, you know, ancient trees that have been cut down to the ground and sprouted again. You know, I trained as a historian of science, and I really think that, for me anyway, the trying to get an intimation of history and process is absolutely essential. If you, if you have the time and the desire to do that, it can really ground you in a way that is, to, again, makes you feel humble and small, but in the right ways.
0: There's also this idea when we're talking about the natural world, that somehow you have to be alone to really experience it. And again, this goes back to the idea that you're sort of fighting the natural world and making your mark and conquering whatever boulder is in front of you. When in fact, you know, it can be perfectly lovely to just sit on a rock and survey what's in front of you and appreciate the fact that you can be standing or sitting in a place of such extraordinary beauty that doesn't necessarily want to be deciphered.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I have a bit of a kind of a little, a little of giggle about this solitary business. Cause of course, you know, that's for years how I thought you should definitely, you know, why would you go with anyone else into the natural world? It has to be a solitary act. And I, I sort of look back at all these, you know, 19th century romantics going out there and staring at the hills and forests. So I had this moment where I was like, wait a minute, if you go out there on your own and look at the the forests and the hills and the fields, they're not going to answer you back. They're not going to disagree with what you think. They're basically going to just reinforce your own ideas about the world. So there's a, there's a way of thinking about that, that it's kind of troubling actually. And actually the pandemic has made me feel even more like this, you know, because I, it has been so solitary for me. I have lived alone the entire time, you know. I'm desperate to get out there with other people. And, you know, I really, even if it means scaring away the shyer animals, you know, I wanna pick up a leaf off the ground and say, look at this, let's, oh my oh gosh, I sound like a nightmare to go for a walk with. But that sense of like sharing experiences rather than just having these solitary moments, has become really important to me now.
0: And also not claiming the experience to put it in a box or to measure it or to capture it somehow. I mean, yes, I've seen some amazing photographs that people have taken and posted to their socials. And if you want to get that close to a bear, by all means, feel free to get that close to a bear. I am not that person.
1: I can't with those photos of people like really close to bears or standing right on the edge of precipices. I'm like, just, just sit down, you know, (laughs) it's been a very, very strange experience you know, this sort of notion of nature in the pandemic. Because I, I mean, earlier on, there was a, I don't know if you remember, there was a lot of talk about how in lockdown, if you if you can get away and, and walk on your own in, in the woods and forests, that's safe. You know, you're not going to infect anyone or get infected and it's going to give you solace and it's going to give you freedom and it's going to help your mental health. And I just kept thinking, you know, what about, it what what if you live in a, in a city and you don't have much financial capital and, you know, you can't get to those places. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how You can have encounters with nature that don't require you to go to those privileged places. And I'm quite a bad housekeeper. So I started looking at the spiders in my house. I have a lot of spiders. I remember one day there was a spider above my oven (laughs) and she was all curled up in the corner with a little, little sack of eggs. And I just thought, you know, that's for me suddenly that moment of paying deep attention to another creature that isn't human and trying to imagine what the world must be like for her, it just instantly made my house a completely different place. And it knocked me out of my human selfishness and made me think about what the world might be like for a spider. And I think this sort of notion of trying to get a paying attention in the cause of empathy um, is kind of, of where I'm going. The essays themselves, you know, I like to think that they're not you know, you know what nature writing's like. So much of it is people sort of pointing at things and saying, aren't you lucky to have me this to explain, you know, to you Mm -hmm. what it is. I I always think of my essays as being much more like um, puzzles that I'm trying to solve in the company of readers. You know, I've I've always felt that they're like conversations, even if they can't be because they're only one-sided, but I hope they feel on reading that sort of acts of friendship rather than sort of teaching or looking down one's nose at a reader.
0: In several essays, you write about how not specifically class, but situational nature, people who collect eggs, and the way people who live in the country respond to, say, collecting goldfinches, which is technically illegal. (laughs) But if you have the space and the acreage and the land and the ponds, you can have ducks, you can have swans, and it really is very much nature can be defined by where you sit yeah. in a class system.
1: Absolutely. And particularly in Britain, as you can imagine, where it infects absolutely everything. So yeah, this all came out of my years. I worked as a historian of science for many years. It's the most fascinating thing to do. And I I, I walked away from that really you know, I worked at the University of Cambridge, the most miraculous place. But, I, you know, the thing that stopped me from continuing with that was this notion that there were all these amazing analytical frameworks and ideas and research. And I kept reading it. And I suddenly thought, no one is reading this. No one is finding out anything about this except other academics. So mm-hmm. I really want to write for everybody. Um, and one of those things I was working on was, you know, who has the right to define the natural world? Who has mm-hmm. the right to define which questions we ask of it? And of course, it's all about power and class and status. so yeah, you know this 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 essay about cage birds, you know, it's not a, an apology for keeping cage birds. I'm not a massive. Right. It's just pointing out that there are some kinds of cage bird keeping that everyone kind of hates, and that's generally because these birds are kept by uh, minor you know by communities that are not high status. So in Britain we have like immigrant communities, miners, travelers, Roma and then there are other kinds of birds like ducks and geese and swans that are just as just as much birds and that are have their wings sort of clipped or pinioned and they're kept on legs but no one really minds that because they're rich people's birds so i wanted to just point out the hypocrisies that are in all our kind of the ways we do we relate to nature because it's not just there it's everywhere you know the you know nature for me is is a really interesting place because it's like the um there's a great line from baudelaire that was I think it was used in that film, The Usual Suspects. It's the, the line about how the greatest trick the devil ever played was to persuade us he didn't exist or doesn't exist. And I think that's how we use nature. We are told that it's the one place free of human meaning. And my book, I hope, shows that it's the place where we hide all the really important stuff. We hide so much human meaning in there and then we use it to prove the truth of those meanings back to us by pointing, out, pointing it out in nature. And I think anyone who's watched a nature documentary about, say, lions in the Serengeti will know there's a lot in those documentaries that isn't really about lions. It's about us. I have to talk to you about Maxwell Knight. Maxwell Knight
0: and his cuckoo, goo, because Maxwell Knight is exactly one of those people that you're talking about who told his own story, a cuckoo in the house.
1: <laughs> terrible, terrible book. If any anyone listening finds this book in a you know a secondhand shop, I honestly don't bother. It's terrible. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, in Ages for Hawk, I wrote about T. H. White, this sort of deeply unhappy gay man mm-hmm. um who really saw himself in the the body of this goshawk that he basically tortured. It was a horrendous story. It's a very sad story. He wasn't given any of the tools to love other things, including himself, and he loved this goshawk, but he, he really did traumatize it and eventually ended up losing it. I got really interested in how a lot of writers before the, the, the world changed for the better, you know, a lot of gay writers were writing coded stories about domesticity and love and affection through talking about animals. And one of those people, I think, is this guy, Maxwell Knight, who is by far the strangest character I've, I've written about. So he was the original M. in Fleming knew him. He worked in counter-espionage in London. MI5. He basically was also obsessed with animals. So this essay is about him, you know, and his weird menagerie, which he he writes about in a way exactly the same way that he wrote about how you look after your agents, you know, you've got to get them to trust you, but you don't want them to be too tame and familiar. And he he has this sort of distant sense that animals are not like us, we shouldn't get too close. But then this day comes when he discovers, you know, he gets hold of this baby cuckoo and he just instantly identifies with it. And of course he does, you know, these birds are masters of living their cover they look like hawks they lay their eggs in other birds nests you know they literally infiltrate the lives of others and he rears this bird and he just is completely consumed with it and I just found the whole story really disturbing and moving and it's one of those stories that you know you can kind of extrapolate from that to so many ways in which we see ourselves reflected in nature and but he he really is a very very interesting character
0: You talk about migration for birds. You talk about migration and refugees. We don't quite seem quick enough to draw the parallels between the wider world and human experience. And we don't see the impact that we're having on migratory patterns or populations even. Not everything is going extinct, but there are troubled populations. If you look at how we've overfished all of the major oceans we don't seem to be getting it.
1: Well, it's it's a really tough one. There's a lot of this mapping in the book of borders and migration and, and loss and grief and love and hope. It's, it just courses right the way through. And let's think of what um, Aldo Leopold, you know, very famously said that, you know, the penalty of an ecological education is that you live alone in a world of wounds. That's that's what it's like out there. So I guess the book is kind of an elegy in some respects and a, but a plea in others. Um, and in terms of not seeing what's going on, you know, we we don't live very long and we don't look very hard. <laughs> you know, we're just people. But I think we you know, it's it's easy to blame ourselves for that. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of yell about this, but we're constantly being told that the way to solve these big problems is to, you know, maybe eat slightly different food or use plastic straws or maybe drive a little less. When actually this is just a massive systemic problem with late capitalism, this ravages of this voracious way of dealing with the world. I think that we are encouraged to feel paralyzed with guilt and shame, and that makes us do absolutely nothing. So, yeah, I try. And again, I'm following Rebecca Solnitz, you know, on this. You know, the the most important thing right now is to try with all our hearts to open a space for uncertainty and hope within us and get out there and, and raise our voices. They are really scary times but there is a lot of beauty out there and there is a lot of complexity still intact. And nature, I don't want to sound trite about this, but it is very resilient if we let it be. It has survived us before. Well, it'll be fine. You know, I mean, things will go extinct, we'll die out and a different era of life will blossom on the earth. But there's no reason for that to happen. We've lost in, in Europe, for example, 350 million birds in my lifetime, population of birds from Europe in my lifetime. We've lost like 40% of the world's wild animals. And I guess we sort of started to believe that massive biodiversity loss was just part of getting old. It's a bit like getting silver hair and wrinkles. It just happens. And of course that's just nonsense. It doesn't have to happen. I'm really happy. Some readers have told me that the book has made them feel a little bit more hopeful, a little bit more aggressive in the sense that they might get out there and do something or try and do something to help. And that's made me really happy.
0: Well, you also make a really great point, too. We were talking about hides in the woods in the UK, which are based on blinds. And you can just go and sit in this tiny hut and watch animals. But you gave yourself permission to be bored and to not expect anything exciting to happen and to just sit there. And really, as your friend was saying, be present in the moment.
1: Yeah, it's... uh... It's really interesting. Those hides are terrifying social traps, though. I mean, I was laughing in that piece about the fact that, you know, you know, everyone goes in there and people sort of murmur. If there are other people in there, which is always a nightmare, you know, they sort of point out things. And if they're wrong, everyone is like terrified and they can't say anything. There was a, one where a, a giant brown rat lumbered past this hide once and someone oh look a water bowl and everyone was like Grr. people actually left the hide they were so horrified at this man humiliating himself but um yeah sitting in a hide and not expecting to see anything so it's not a theater it's not a television and we're not being given anything you can just sit there and stare at a piece of mud and some trees and like a pond or a lake for an hour and see almost nothing and that is a lesson in in a kind of attention that it's very hard for me to get anywhere else, I think. One of the joys of nature for me is, is that sense of absolute unpredictability that's kind of meshed with the predictability. So if I go for a walk around here, I know exactly where the different birds that have territories will be sitting and singing. But at the same time, I never know what else I'm going to see and I never know what will happen, you know, whether a hawk will sweep over my head or whether I'll find a tiny frog or, you know, it's endlessly... Um, endlessly generative and inspiring to be out there.
0: Can we talk about some of the writers who've influenced you?
1: I never know what to, to say, what people ask me about writers. I'd quite like to, to confess something about H.S. for Hawk. When I'm writing, I find it very hard to read anything else because mm-hmm. I, I chameleon, I end up writing like the person I'm reading, which is always a bit of a disaster. I've got to try and write my own story, but Shakespeare I could read. And also, uh, so I was reading a lot of Shakespeare, at the time of writing that book. And so quite a lot of the more elaborate lyrical passages. Now, when I read them, I'm like, I think I stole that from Henry V. Or that was from Richard the (laughs) Wait, I can see where that came from. I felt really guilty. So there's a bit of kind of chameleon stuff going on there. And then at the same time at night, I was listening to Agatha Christie audiobooks. And, um, That's awesome. and very soothing. I love it, a, a mystery. And I have a feeling the kind of narrative drive of Ages for Hawk, I just basically, is just completely imported from Agatha Christie. So yeah, Shakespeare and Agatha Christie were the books that really made Ages for Hawk. But as for other books, I read really wi- widely. I don't read enough. I wish I could be one of those people that has constant, has stacks and stacks and stacks of books on the go but um, there are writers that I go back to a lot. And there are some writers that I go back to for reasons that they make me want to write. So there's a, a British poet and journal writer called Roger Langley. There's Aldo Leopold. Recently, I've been reading a whole bunch of stuff. Phil Clyde, who wrote redeployment and his most recent novel again you know doesn't write books like mine but when I read him I just want to write Colson Whitehead a lot of science fiction I just read what I can uh, when I can but I feel always that I'm not reading I'm not reading enough books about nature I always feel slightly guilty it's a bit like what's happened during the pandemic people kept thinking keep saying you know you must have gone out into the into the nature every day and you know been out there in the rain and the wind and I sort of had to say well actually there's been a lot of watching TV and bad action movies and eating ice cream on my couch. So it's not all been nature. But yeah, I mean I don't know um it's got to be Shakespeare, isn't it? I mean when I was a kid I, you know, you know I try and read Shakespeare and and now when I read Shakespeare age 50 I just cry all the time. It's just astonishing. I can't get through it without weeping. It's just so bloody good. And it's such a cliche answer, but honestly. That's the Desert Island book.
0: Have you had a chance to read Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet?
1: Hamnet I don't have, and everyone I know that has read
0: it has said it's astonishing. I really think you'd love it. And the new Colson Whitehead that's coming in September, Harlem Shuffle, it is fantastic. It's electrifying, that book. It's a caper flick. It's a heist book. It is wild. And it's set in Harlem in 1964,
1: and it is fabulous. It is so good
0: and Phil Khai yeah missionaries is is the
1: second book oh, came yeah. About, yeah and what i love about that that novel is that it, it's got such a deep and serious moral core and it's so mm-hmm. much of you know you start off thinking it's the story of this person and then it, you realize that it's a, a book about many things to do with sort of violence and responsibility and conflict and politics but it's a book about community and community work mm-hmm. and, and i was so deeply moved by that book i had to sort of go and lie down for a day afterwards <laughs> to recover it's extraordinary so
0: I think people sometimes forget that reading is a community activity, even though it's something you do in a solitary fashion. Are you a reader or are you not? Yeah. And I've had plenty of people tell me, "Oh, I don't read." I'm like, "Well, I'm sorry for you. I don't know what else to say."
1: No, it's it's true. I mean, I'm like that with mathematics, though. Matt, with maths, yeah, and I, I can't do math. And um, I got told off quite soundly about this recently when I sort of said, "Oh, I can't do math. and they said, "Well, you wouldn't be boasting about not reading, would you?" And I was like, "Oh, no, I wouldn't." And then I yeah. thought about it more, and I'm like, "No, it's still better." <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, community, I mean again, this is the thing that I miss most is is not getting out and, and meeting readers. And it sounds like one of those things that writers always say, but you know, I had no idea when I wrote ages for Hawk. That mm. half of the job of writing isn't sitting at your desk weeping and trying to get the thing right it's getting out there and talking to readers and it, it's it's life-changing i mean it really did change me that when i first started touring and it made me love people a lot more and love the world a lot more and, and it made me oh my gosh i sound like a you know someone giving a speech at an awards ceremony or something. but I, I honestly honestly changed my life um, more almost more than the, the, the you know the book doing well was just meeting people and talking about grief and loss and love and realizing that we all go through it all of us we just don't always share it with each other so that was an extraordinary thing so yes I cannot wait to get back in the shops but don't worry if you're, if you're a random person by the bookshelf I'm not going to come <laughs> running up to you and grab your sleeve and say let's talk about deep things I'm actually a lot less intense than that sounds The essays in Vesper Flights
0: are of varying lengths. Was that a distinct choice for you or is that just how the essays showed up?
1: Yeah, uh, that was a distinct choice. I really wanted there to be little fragments that sort of jammed in a, a bit like, I remember when I was a, when I was a student and I worked in a secondhand bookstore, it was a great place. It was, this is a long time ago, but it was like, you know, we used to smoke Turkish cigarettes in there and kind of like <laughs> were very, very incredibly rude to customers we didn't like. I mean, it was, you know, you, you wouldn't get away with that these days. It was a really hilarious shop, but you know, you'd open a, an, an old book and out would come like a, a letter or a bus ticket or something. And I, I kind of felt like it's something about the way that, that this collection worked, you know, I wanted it to feel like you could discover, suddenly discover a joke. There's like a story about my dad and a goat in there, unexpected or you know, or, or suddenly a much longer piece or a piece that's in a different tone. I wanted it to feel like you were encountering different things that were surprising all the time. And um and I I don't know, I just I really love it. When I when I put it together, I was sort of a little bit worried that it didn't flow, that it didn't have a heart. I, found, I sound like the Wizard of Oz. But as it sat there, you know, as it sort of went through the process of becoming a, a real live book, you know, taking flight, I began to see how it really it really was one thing. You know, there's a lot of themes that, that, go, that go between the essays and it's its own thing. I'm really proud of it. It's like a little kid that I've made has gone out into the world and it's sort of stopping, you know, stomping around. I love this book and um, I'm really pleased it's essays. Um, They're an interesting form, and again, I I hope they're really generous. They're a generous form for a reader to to, to grapple with.
0: I've read it a couple of different ways. I read it straight through the first time. And then when I was going back to prepare for this, I was like, no, I'm going to start here, and then I'm going to jump there, and then I'm going to go back to this. And I sort of just noodled my way around as if I were on a long walk. Nature, on the whole, has so much to tell us if we're
1: willing to listen but i don't always know how to get people to listen i don't know it's like i've found something on a walk like a like an eggshell or a feather oh dear it all sounds terribly twee doesn't it but i'm like lifting it up to the reader and saying look at this you know you know that kind of like enthusiasm look, look at this and it really is whole-souled and it's honest it's 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 a kind of attention that i think is a really beautiful thing to experience when it comes to the natural world a kind of attention which is a part which is partly love
0: I do think it'll also just convince some folks to maybe go outside and see what they see. That's probably the best start is to just go outside and see what's there.
1: Yeah, go outside. You know, you don't need to have, you know, great herds of of ungulates. You know, you can go and turn over a flower pot on your back step or you can look under a, a blowing kind of bag of whatever and find bugs. So These things are just as strange and alien and, and beautiful in a way as 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 anything else we're presented as as you know wild nature and and you know one of the big lessons of the book I hope having said that's not a lesson but the big lesson that I found really writing it and thinking about it is just it's just the importance of remembering that the world is not here just for us. It doesn't belong to us. It never has done. And um, it's a very very crucial thing to remember that. And I think of Robin Wool wonderful observation in Braiding Sweetgrass where you know she asked her students that were talking about how terrible humans are for the natural world you know and how everything we touch turns to ash she said okay like what well, what would it feel like to believe that the earth loved you back and when i read that kind of everything stopped within me for a second it's it's the most astonishingly redemptive thought and it's kind of been shouting inside me ever since so that's another thing to keep in mind what would it be like if you felt the earth loved you back
0: Helen McDonald, thank you so much. Vesper Flights is out in paperback
1: now. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you. Thank you to everyone. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.